Welcome to the Two Fun Guys podcast. I'm your host, Brent Ruska. And I'm Tony Hadan. And we have a very, very special guest today. Um, the man, the mystery from uh, Two Brothers Organic Farms, Satya. Thank you. Thank you, Brent. Thank you guys for having me over, man. Yeah. It's a and pleasure. You, you've been going on a, uh, an American tour. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, so Brent, we are farmers from India and uh, we come from a small village in the heartland of rural India and uh, we're organic farmers and just thought about meeting community and consumers and people in the US talking about the way uh, farming is done organically in India since time immemorial. India has a farming history of over, I think, three, four, five thousand years. And it was sustainable till the Green Revolution came in and suddenly it's become unsustainable. So it's our experience in uh, that kind of farming which you want to take forward to people in America and also food making. We make food the way India made food a couple of hundred years back. So, you know, sustainable traditional farming and sustainable traditional food making and just meeting community and talking to them about it. That's amazing. And I want to dive into why, what, what happened with that grain revolution and what you're trying to reverse. But first, we should give a backstory about how we know each other. Oh yeah, this is this is crazy. I never thought I would meet you again after five, <laughs> six years of yeah. that too in the US. I remember last you were at the farm uh, five, six years back. You were on a workaway and you had chosen the farm to work with. And I remember you calling me and you know just telling me that you want to come to the farm and see stuff. And when you came down, I the first thing I asked you, did you see the Taj Mahal? Or did you see something in India? And you said, no, I just landed in Mumbai, took a cab till Pune and then taken a bus to the village. And I think you stayed on the farm for 20, 21 days. And you were there in the village when we were just starting our farming and whatever we were interested in doing. And you were with the family and, you know, we had a good time. And that's when I saw you off five, six years back. I never thought I would come to the U.S. as a farmer and this profession would bring me to speak to consumers and I would meet you in person <laughs> back in the U.S. So it's it's a very, uh, for me, it's a... It's a, it's a circle, you know, getting complete, meeting you in the U.S. when you met us back in India in the village. It's a special treat. And then when you go home, you'll start your podcast. Then me and Tony will go out there and we'll be on your <laughs> podcast. And then the circle will truly be complete. Yeah, I'm going to start the podcast, especially after meeting you, because I remember last when you were on the farm, you were the guy who started our Instagram channel. <laughs> and now we have a couple of hundred thousand followers. And I owe it to you because I remember you gave us the handle name and you were telling us that, guys, you should get onto Instagram. It's the thing. And that's how it started with us in, on Instagram. Yeah, if you guys want to check out on his YouTube, uh, just type in Two Brothers Organic Farms, the first YouTube videos we created together. Because the things that were happening on that farm are very magical. And this is the thing that stopped me from being vegan and switched me over to actually understanding the circle of soil and animals and uh, just bringing all of it together, right? Um, Tell me a little bit about how you got into farming. Because from what I understand, you and your brother, you know, both have MBAs in business. How'd that all begin? Yeah, so we're sons of farmers uh, hailing from the small village in India. What is that village, by the way? Uh, the village is called Bhodani. B-H-O-D-A-N-I, Bhodani. Okay. It's in Indapur Taluka in Pune district in the state of Maharashtra in India. It's on the western side of India. And uh, we were born in that village. But when we were age four, I think our parents put us in a boarding school in the nearest city, which is Pune, uh, with the intention that never get back to farming and the village because somehow farming has become unsustainable in India. And I think it's the case all across the world. And it's not socially respectable in India as a profession. So they were like, you know, you study in a boarding, you take a job in a city and move to larger cities and never come back to this landscape. And that's what we did. I completed my graduation in economics uh, from Pune and then did my MBA from Pune University. I was followed by my younger brother, Ajinkya, and he did the same thing. And then we got working. Uh, I was working with Citibank for some time and he was working with HSBC. And we got working in the corporate world, ticking all those boxes that our parents and society wanted us to do. At a young age, I'd got a home on loan. I'd got a car on loan and, you know, everything was set. Uh, but there was some sort of vacuum that we were experiencing, some sort of lull 
somehow not satisfied uh, not in that joyous state while doing uh, this job which was uh, you know kind of uh, recommended by everybody and you know i remember going back to the village every summer holiday for those two months and swimming in the well and we live in this 100 year old house it's called a wada which you have been it's made of stone mud and wood and there were cows and buffaloes in front of the house and that experience was somehow very joyous so when we thought you know uh, one life to live do we keep doing what we are not interested in or try pursuing something that makes us happy uh, you know farming came up, came up as that thing that makes us happy and we decided to leave our jobs and get back to farming uh, no idea of creating a business or a brand around it but just about pursuing something that we love so passionately and that's how we got back to farming 10 9 10 years back and before this you were kind of going through a little bit of a a spiritual search oh yes uh yeah uh questioning many things uh, there were many questions arising in our minds and just the purpose of uh life this question was uh kind of growing in my head and i was questioning you know why do we and it might sound very weird but why do we exist kind of and uh um, i think all normal questions to start asking yourself <laughs> <laughs> yeah but at that age it, it you know many people when i looked around no one was kind of questioning they were enjoying what they were doing and just living the life but for us it was uh you know one life to live am i doing what makes me happy what is the purpose of my uh, living and uh, you know when i thought and questioned uh, all i could think is that i think the purpose is to just roam the world and see places that's whatever nature or god has made so many places and so many geographies and you know see and come back and then i was like you know this might get over in 3 years time it won't take time for me to visit the entire world and then why does a person live till 90 you know what is the objective of life and that's uh, when these questions uh, got me reading stuff and uh, you know meeting people and um, one of those parts which i found that gave me some logical rational answers was uh the text of vedanta uh it's a spiritual literature that comes and dates back a couple of thousand years in india and i got reading that and one thing i immediately understood was for me to pursue my swadharma and which is you know something that i love doing because that gives you a tailwind in your journey of life and in your spiritual involvement uh visavis pursuing what is called as paradharma which is not your innate nature and that gives you headwind in whatever you're doing so that's when i understood this and decided to pursue farming which i always found as my area of interest my swadharma i love that so when you returned to the farm and decided this was something you wanted to do what were you what what things were you seeing done incorrectly with farming yeah so when we came back uh, you know uh, with no education in farming and when we came to the farming landscape uh some of the best sources of information for us were our co-workers on the farm they are like not really literate uh you know but they they know data in terms of experience and these co-workers were telling us that on the same farm when my father started farming inheriting the land from my grandfather the productivity of land was close to 90 and 100 tons per acre of sugarcane and now it's dropped down to 30 and 40 tons of per acre sugarcane and i'm like you know for the hundreds of years that farming was done this productivity did not drop but in the last 40 50 years this has halved and uh, another research uh, you know talking to farmers around us told us that the water holding capacity of the soil had uh, gone down by half uh, the biodiversity both above and below the soil had gone down by half and things were just getting very challenging and uh, that's that's you know when i Uh, started questioning whether this is sustainable farming or not and if i continue on this path uh, in a 20 30 years time the soil might lose all fertility and i'll have to detach or you know take up another profession and for you know as farmers farming is not only a profession it's it's a duty it's a duty to grow food we have a connection with soil we treat uh, the soil as a second mother uh, we, we you know famously call it in in our state back as a black mother mm. and uh, you know this connection is very strong and that disturbed me when i uh, went to know the thought that this farm will not be sustainable and that's when we started looking for holistic and sustainable solutions of farming 
what is the importance of good soil or what is good soil? Why is soil important? So, you know, soil is the medium in which uh, all living organisms and plants grow. And uh, many people think and uh, relate soil to dirt. Uh, but when I studied this, I realized that soil is living. Uh, you know, a teaspoon of healthy soil, which is full of organic matter and the right microbiology has more living organisms than humans on earth. So one teaspoon of healthy soil contains over 8 billion microorganisms and that's how healthy soil is. And and I, I came to know the relation between these microorganisms and soil and the fertility of soil. So, you know, simply put, it's it's a very simple process how nature functions. The soil has all the nutrient required for the tree to grow or for the plant to grow for the next 100,000 years. The deeper you go, the concentration of these nutrients double. But these nutrients are in an unavailable format. So it's like I'm giving you wheat to eat, grains. You cannot eat directly grains. You have to grind it, make it flour and bake a bread and then you eat the bread. So you have converted unavailable format into an available format and consumed it. Similarly, these nutrients were in an unavailable format. But modern agricultural sciences and modern practices were not really teaching us how to convert it to an available format. And when I studied soil microbiology, I understood that it is these microorganisms, your bacteria, fungi, nematode, protozoa, who convert all these nutrients to available formats and make it available for the tree's white root system. And the tree takes it and grows into a healthy tree producing good organic fruits and vegetables and, you know, it grows well. And then I realized that it is these forced six inches of soil or soil, uh, you know, has to be focused on as a farmer. What grows is a byproduct of the fertility of the soil. So what was causing the decrease in quality in the soil? So increasingly uh, in the last 40, 50 years, conventional agricultural practices like uh, using, uh, you know, chemical fertilizers, uh, nitrogen-based fertilizers, Acidic-based fertilizers like urea and, uh, you know, uh, the other micro and macronutrients which are in a chemical form. These uh, literally burn the carbon in the soil and they kill the microorganisms, making the plant depend more and more on them. Instead of, you know, promoting this microbiology and uh, making the plant, uh, you know, depend less on the farmer and more on the ecosystem that's below the root zone. Uh, you know, these chemical fertilizers kill they burn carbon and uh, they make the soil infertile. Okay. And that's how you started using food forests. Yeah. Other than yeah, that's that's one of the pillars on which uh, organic farming rests. Uh, we also came to know that monocropping is not really healthy for the soil. Like, you know, humans, we need an aunt, an uncle, uh, a brother, a sister. You know, so similarly in the uh, plant world, you need different varieties of plants that grow amongst each other. There is a lot of give and take. Some are monocots, some are dicots, somebody's sequestering nitrogen, somebody's taking that nitrogen. The root systems speak to each other. There's exchange of microbiology. And there's so much of it going when you have a natural mix. And that's how nature is. Nature will never monocrop. You go to a jungle, uh, you know, it has a plethora of varieties of trees growing. And then we decided to replicate uh, that nature's model and design on our farm. Uh, and we started planting uh, forests, but of trees that gave us fruits. So we call it a food forest. And, um, you know, gave away the idea of monocropping and garden polycropping and planting these various varieties of fruit trees and stuff. So that, that's one of the pillars of organic farming, yeah. Okay, what are the other pillars? Oh yeah, so there are broadly four pillars of organic farming. You start off with... Uh, culturing the soil or inoculating the soil with healthy bacteria, uh, assuming that the practices have ruined, uh, you know, microbial life in the soil, you have to administer the soil with some amount of microbiology. So the best source of microbiology is a cow's dung or animal dung and, uh, you know, cow uh, dung and cow urine. And uh, we make a, a sort of fertilizer with this. Uh, we take that dung, put it in water, add some uh, jaggery which is sugars and some flour which is carbohydrates and increase the number of this microbiology in their dung and then take that liquid and just you know administer it on the ground once that microbiology is in the ground 
you have to ensure enough carbon is given to that microbiology to grow and what is carbon carbon is nothing but your dried leaves twigs uh, you know prunings cuttings of the plant which you know farmers burn it's a big uh, problem in india uh, our capital is delhi and uh, during the harvest season of wheat the airport is shut for a week because farmers around delhi burn the waste that comes after harvesting the wheat and uh, and, and it, it amazes me because this carbon is gold which needs to go back in the soil this is eaten by microbiology it turns the soil fertile and farmers are burning it so that is the first step where you administer microbiology and you let it grow uh, the second step is mulching so all the dried leaves twigs prunings cuttings need to be mulched on the soil uh, these are food for the microbiology and also form a layer that uh, prevents water from evaporating and going in the atmosphere and uh, that means you need less water and it also uh, you know creates microcosms or micro environments so that a lot of other living creatures can live in them that is the second pillar the third pillar is like you mentioned food forest not monocropping but polycropping with a variety of fruits vegetable tubers legumes lentil pulses millets flowers you create a veritable food forest and the fourth pillar is you plant uh what we call as a forest wall around the farm so you plant trees that grow to a height of 40 feet that do not have long branches like bamboo and australian pine uh so they do not allow the winds to blow in the farm with high speeds they cut the speed of the wind and they create a microclimate of sorts that's beneficial for crops to grow mm. so these are the four broad pillars yeah i love that that's cool i have a question on the fertilization part is there a reason human dung isn't used Oh, there. Uh, it's not in great quantities. <laughs> so cows. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about cows, that. Yeah, cows have uh, great quantities of that that dung, and somehow I think it's uh, uh, what humans eat is a lot of rubbish. Mm-hmm. So their dung or that their you know human waste is not properly digested. It's acidic in profile, whereas uh, animals eat a lot of natural stuff. Uh, they ruminate. They you know their uh, digestive systems are better. longer and their dung is more uh, neutral in the in the profile and so more microbiology live in their dung so this this, this is uh the you using cow dung is what opened my eyes to the importance of animals on a farm and how there's they're they're a pe- a piece of the ecosystem and i think when i was there you know we would clean the dung stalls and we would push it into the pit right <laughs> and they would go out every single day and you know go graze and then they come back um and i think you taught me something along those cows the uh, indigenous cows are much different than a lot of cows that are maybe in europe or in the us can you talk a little bit about that oh yeah when you were there and we were working in the cow shed uh, there is a, a breed of cows that we keep on the farm and that breed is called gir g i r and uh, it belongs to a variety or you know the indian indigenous cows variety there are 32 surviving varieties of indian indigenous cows amongst the most famous is the gir you have the kankraj sahiwal uh, you know the khillar there are many varieties and these have a history of a couple of thousand years and old. they're beautiful they're and they're beautiful they're big they kind of remind me of the longhorn a little bit yeah yeah so the, these cows um, you know were there in india but lately in the last 40 50 years uh, especially during the milk revolution a lot of the jersey and holstein cows were imported uh, some from the us and some from europe because they yielded more milk and farmers like you know are paid for gallons and quantity and not for quality uh, government told farmers to keep these cows so that they'll get more productivity and farmers kept them uh, but lately there's been a lot of research and uh, there's this famous new zealand based scientist called keith woodford who's done a lot of research and written a book called devil in the milk where he says that you know the indian indigenous cows and an african variety called zebu have the a2 protein in them and the jersey and holsteins have the a1 protein in them and he's done research on the milk part on the nutrition part and he relates a couple of diseases if you keep consuming a1 milk um, and and that's that's come to Uh, everybody's you know uh, attention now but when you think back as a farmer uh, dung is what is used to fertilize the soil 
and when i have been observing you know dung of the jersey and holston cow like i said it's not best suited for our geography for our fodder it comes from a different climate zone and it doesn't have uh, as long as an intestine like the indian cow has it doesn't uh, ruminate a lot uh, and that's why its dung is little watery it's acidic the number of microbiology that can survive is less and an indian cow's cow dung the number of microbiology it falls like a cake so you can easily imagine it's well digested and uh, that is uh, a house for a lot of microbiology and the quantity of microbiology is what gives the potency to the dung so as to say and an indian indigenous cow can eat anything when you were on the farm you know they were eating dry fodder uh, we had a drought for 2 3 years uh, they really they really very hardy and they can eat neem leaves and whatever grows locally and survive and that's important for a farmer so these reasons combine um i focus on working with indian indigenous cows only that's super interesting because in the us we used to have bison everywhere buffalo and the local farm out here they use bison and when i was out there they would say the same thing every foot or two they would leave these kind of dry paddies and they must be very similar they're more of like our indigenous yeah. cow and that's why the land was so prosperous when they were roaming everywhere because it was a natural way of fertilizing yeah. the land do you notice the health of indians being different when they're eating from old school ways of uh, or or the modern dirt uh crops versus when they're eating with rich soil oh yeah there's there's a difference um when i look back at uh, my grandfather's generation my grandfather my mother's father he just uh, expired 2 years back he lived till 103 wow and uh, did not have any chronic disease no diabetes no blood pressure nothing and uh, he ate directly what grew on the farm he was an old school guy so as to say he drank milk of the indian indigenous cow he ate ghee he ate curds uh, he ate what grew on the farm and uh, you know uh, he ate uh, bread prepared from millets or from native grains and not only wheat 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 that has become a norm in india also now and there was diversity on his plate uh, he ascribed to what his mother made and how she made food and what she ate and he ate the similar things in the in the last uh, 30 40 years a lot of western influence of what food is and stuff has influenced indians also and it's a fashion of sorts to eat westernized foods i'm not saying it's it's wrong or good or bad uh, but uh, the essence of what our traditional food is is lost and now you have uh, many youngsters uh, getting chronic diseases getting autoimmune diseases which were not a case uh, with the earlier generation and you have diabetes which is india has become the diabetes capital of the world and uh, that's really yeah wow. it, it is the diabetes capital of the world because of the density of uh, people who have diabetes and um, it's a bad state of affairs now you know how has your health changed oh that's a nice question i was <laughs> while doing a job in the city uh, running around helter skelter doing something i do not love uh, sitting and working you know for prolonged hours it it started giving me giving me a back pain and i come from a boarding school where sports was an intrinsic part of our life and i played football and athletics and i never thought at age when i was uh, i think 26 27 my back pain started and i thought it's some usual back pain so i i just pulled it and after i think 6 8 months i couldn't walk 10 meters i had to sit down and my entire leg used to pain you know i couldn't walk types and when i sat down for 2 minutes it used to release and again i used to walk 10 meters and sit and then i realized there's something you know horribly wrong and i went to a doctor and in a famous hospital in pune and they got me checked and done an mri and stuff and he said that uh, i have what is uh, known as a disc herniation it's loosely called a slip disc and my l3 and l4 he said is badly herniated and i need to undergo a surgery immediately and uh, and it, and I, like i you know given the background that i was off in a boarding school i thought this is impossible at age 28 uh, my back is broken and uh, being a sportsman in school and college and that troubled me i didn't go in for that surgery and i went and saw a chiropractor and did some physio the pain released a bit but when i got to farming uh, and i did what i was loving doing and what i was so passionate about 
the pain started gradually moving away from my life and today uh, i can jog like i was sharing with you yesterday i can jog 15 to 18 miles i i jog every alternate day 5 miles and i can pick up weight on the farm i can work for uh, you know till i walk 26 27 000 steps a day on the farm there is no back pain left um and i attributed to two things one is to physically moving around and working on the farm and that strengthens you know the the leg muscles the back muscles and secondly is to doing what i love and i believe that the energy flow if you know gets stuck if you're not doing what you love and if you're you know doing what you love it it flows out to the universe and comes back to you and that that uh, you know is above pain and uh, these two things have benefited me a lot and uh, i have not done the surgery yet if i get my back scan i'll yet have those two herniated discs but uh, this would have been something that's impossible you know for uh, doctors to you know to predict that i could jog and run and work on the farm without doing a surgery wow that's uh, that's quite the story So you returned back to the farm. You started working on the soil. What were the next things that occurred after, you know, getting the soil back on track? What were some of the things you started to grow? Yeah, so when we came back, um I realized that uh, monocropping is not the norm. Then you plant a mixed variety of crops. I also realized that uh, what my grandfather grew uh, was, you know, uh that was not being grown by the present generation he was growing some sorts of millets uh he was growing some sorts of fruits that present generation was not going and then it made me look on uh you know native heirloom varieties and uh, i graduated towards growing native heirloom uh varieties of all kinds of pulses legumes lentils millets um uh, and uh, realized the importance of it because that native variety has had a genetic memory of close to 3 4000 years it knows how to best survive in that climate uh, in that scanty rainfall and uh, knows uh, best what nutrition is required by people living in that vicinity uh, there is a memory you know which it which it knows well and uh, i realized that and i realized that the modern hybrid uh, gmo is not yet very prevalent in india it's more prevalent in the us but anything that science has tampered on and fiddle around with the main objectives were to just produce more and there was no emphasis on what quality or what nutrition that uh, variety had or that species had and they have altered stuff to such a degree where uh, there's more coming out of the farm but it's more faff and less nutrition that's coming out of the farm and when you eat it as a consumer it's not satiating you as much as real food should and that's causing you know a hell lot of other problems so i graduated towards growing native heirloom varieties and we have a seed bank that we share with farmers that whom we work with and we focus on growing heirloom so yesterday you taught us that most ghee that you can find in the us is fake can you go over that one more time and what should people be looking for because now ghee is becoming really popular people are using it for cooking as a as a healthier alternative but apparently it's not what they think it is Yeah absolutely it's a I'm surprised when I was in I'm in the US for the last 18 days and I've been in the bay area and then in Los Angeles and now in Austin and I'm just come to meet people talk to them and visit stores uh, the very famous ones and uh, the other organic ones and general stores and I've been looking at ghee's on the shelf and reading the back of pack labels and nearly every brand and every ghee is nothing but butter oil and uh, it's been called ghee uh so the concept of ghee even not only in the us but even in india also has graduated or you know kind of fallen to a level where butter oil is called ghee and that's not how my grandmother made ghee and that's not how ghee was made in india ghee is something that originated in india it has a history of over 4 5000 years in india it's written in folk tales it's written in spiritual literature it's written in uh, so many things you know and i saw my grandmother make ghee by taking cow milk or buffalo milk and you know uh you know kind of boiling it and letting it turn lukewarm inoculating it with curd you know live uh, lactic acid bacilli and then turning that milk to curds entirely and the next day in the morning between 4 a.m to 6 a.m churning the curds to get white butter and then melting that white butter to get ghee and i'm like you know uh if it was so easy just to 
skim the milk of cream and to make butter and then melt the butter to make ghee which is what majority of manufacturers do why did my grandmother or why did people in india traditionally make ghee in this five step process if you know it's cumbersome but why did they make this and then started reading a lot of science around what cultured ghee is and it's it's growing in the us and then now science tells us that when you culture milk with lactic acid bacilli it breaks many a complex protein and substances to simpler forms and you know this this ghee the cultured ghee if you make it in the five step process is the only ghee that melts below human body temperature the butter oil ghee melts above human body temperature this cultured ghee has butyric acid which is good for your gut microbiome it ha- it you know it increases your what is loosely called the good cholesterol and the butter oil ghee actually helps in increasing your bad cholesterol and uh, ayurveda the ancient indian science of medicine and well being tells us to eat ghee every day one teaspoon in in your rice dal and you know in your food on your chapati naan rotis on your bread uh, and just have it like medicine it's so potent uh, but recently you know it's uh, there was research in the middle which said you know there are heart risk if you eat ghee and then i relate that you know those heart risks are because people are eating butter oil as ghee and not the real ghee so that's that's ghee that's a real ghee man so if someone's in the store how can they find real ghee you should look out for uh, you know ghee that are made uh, by cultured milk or by uh, churning curds uh, that is something you should ask for and uh, in case you have access to a2 uh, milk made uh, that's cultured to made ghee that is something you should look out for or then you can pick up goat ghee uh, that is cultured and made into ghee by churning the curds and removing white butter so the word cultured is something everybody should look out for while buying the ghee got it so organic farming i want to touch on this because i think this is, has everything to do with what you're talking about when we were there you were talking about some of the certifications that your farm was getting is there a difference in just like USDA organic um versus other organic certifications so when people are trying to look okay i'm trying to find food that's made from soil that has these nutrients that is much healthier for me and is helping the land what are people looking for and what are the difference between the different certifications also certifications uh, you have country wise certifications and regulations uh, the country put some norms so usda and india certification i think 80 90% is is the same except that when you want an us when you want to sell your products as organic certified in the us you have to enroll with a certification body in the us and the auditors come all the way and it's a costly process uh, but otherwise it requires you know 4 years to get your farm certified you do with the you know india certified way or the us certified way and uh, you know the you get the organic certification but uh, lately there has uh, been awareness that organic in the us uh, there are some permitted chemicals and external stuff that you can use and yet call yourself organic and it's allowed in the certification process you can use hybrid and gmos and yet call yourself you know a certified organic uh, you know product and i i feel those are the shortcomings of uh, the certification there have been these holes drilled into and these provisions made where you know some sort of uh, you know malpractice can come into the certification process also so what we follow is natural farming and which is now famously called regenerative organic farming in the us and you have certificates for regenerative organic farming now we don't have it in india we are, we are trying to tie up with certification bodies and it's a costly affair but uh, i believe that when a brand works with its farmers and spends time with the farmer on the field uh, you know maintaining data via videos photos like the way we do it and maintaining that transparency uh, that is very important and uh, I, i i just wish that the term regenerative organic farming grows because that doesn't mean that you can put a hybrid or a gmo and grow it and call it organic that doesn't mean that you know you are allowed to use the x number of chemicals that are allowed by organic certifications so i feel uh, organic is slightly abused now and uh, regenerative organic is what's growing and what we should focus on and i think you at the time mentioned you had a french cert- certification oh, yes yeah. like a different standard of some sort 
Yeah, so we our farm is certified by EcoCert, and that's uh, a French multinational which has an office in India. And from the last seven years, we've been in uh, you know in in touch with them and getting our farm certified every year. Wow, let's go over all the stuff you grow on the farm. Oh yeah, so there's a food forest. I think when you came, it was just kind of planted and it was growing. It's done four years, and we have we are we are going to start harvesting from the food forest. Uh, so we have. Uh, a lemon orchard. Uh, these are these Indian indigenous lemons. Uh, they're called the Kagzi variety. Even in India, many farmers have switched to the modern hybridized or the, you know, kind of the ones that agricultural universities propagate, which is Sai Sarbati. But these Indian lemons are, you know, they have a skin that's like paper. They're very nutritious. They're rich in vitamin C. They last for 40 years. Uh, and we're making some amazing lemon pickle that traditional Indian way, oil-free lemon pickle, which is an excellent probiotic with these lemons. Then we have some sugarcane on the farm. Uh, this sugarcane, again, is a native variety, 86032. It's grown the organic way, and then we take that sugarcane and crush it the traditional way, and then boil that sugarcane juice over an iron pan with okra extract, which acts like a coagulant to remove the molasses, and then make jaggery. Jaggery has a history of 5,000 years Lately, people uh, started consuming refined sugar, which doesn't have a history of more than 100 years. And refined sugar is, again, uh, highly abused because it's it has over 80 chemicals to make that sugar look white and bright and, you know, the way it is today. And it's become a health hazard of sorts. Uh, but jaggery is a traditional way of making uh, sugarcane juice into uh, a sweet alternative. And it has fiber. It's rich in iron, copper. So we make jaggery on the farm with our sugarcane. Then there's peanuts that we are growing. These are again of the heirloom variety. They have less allergens. Uh, you know, we split the peanut, remove the endosperm, we sand roast it, and then stone ground it to make peanut butter that has no binder of filler. And I realized when I was reading labels and getting these peanut butters tested in my laboratory that most of the peanut butters have something called a filler, which looks like peanut butter, which tastes like peanut butter, but... It's not made of peanuts. Oh. And that was uh, stunning. I wonder if that's why so many people in the U.S. have peanut allergies. Yeah, that's one of the major reasons. Well, we eat a ton of peanut butter. So yeah. we we definitely have to get some of that peanut butter. I bet you could combine the jaggery and the peanut butter. Should make like a special. Yeah, we have that. It's oh, called, yeah? yeah? Oh, perfect. It's, it's the sweetened peanut butter. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, the jaggery. Available on your website. <laughs> yeah. I think jaggery is going to become very popular in the U.S. because you have all these different like agave nectar and all that. But this actually has a, uh, it sounds like it releases a little bit slower. You can still get that sweetness and you get all these other health benefits. Yeah, it's lower in GI than sugar. Yeah. Yeah, and then you've used the word heirloom a couple times in reference to different foods. And I've heard of heirloom tomatoes, but I haven't heard of heirloom anything else. So what does that mean? So heirloom means basically what, uh, you know, your or my grandfather was growing as farmers. And it's come to him from his grandfather or his father, and it's passed on from generation to generation. The seeds of that variety of plant that I've passed on from, you know, families from generation to generation, that is heirloom. So like you have heirloom mm -hmm. jewelry, I think, yeah, something that is passed on from generation to generation. That makes sense, the word heir. Yeah. Heirloom. Yeah. Uh, heirloom. I got it. I, I only know this because when weed shops opened in the Washington, there were heirloom varieties. And I dug into the guy, I was like, what is this? And he's like, these are the original genetic strains. And when you had them, they were way more balanced because they had the CBD and whatnot. And then there's the genetically modified cannabis that's just like super high in THC, but it doesn't have all the blend of the terpenine. So it's like how nature designed it to be. You see, kids, you can learn things by doing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> just take it from Brent. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you talk to the guy at the counter, he'll tell you everything. <laughs> that's interesting. So yeah, jaggery seems like the best alternative to sugar that we have out there. Yeah, I feel it's it's an amazing alternative. It it tastes so wholesome. It has that fiber. It has volume, and it's nutritious to an extent since it's rich in copper and iron. And and, and the way you the way it's made, jaggery can be made by marginal farmers. Refined sugar cannot be made by marginal farmers. It's made in large industrial setups. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I have a you know a small setup. Uh, a fire-powered oven, an iron pan, and some sugarcane growing, I can make my own jaggery. So it's 
uh, you know, that small, beautiful concept. Yeah. Wow. How many products do you have total now? Well, now it's it's been, uh, I think, close to 19 years that we have been growing and making stuff out of those products. And today the basket uh, consists of over 70, 75 products. Yeah, every product has a story. Every product represents a geography, a tradition, a culture, uh, and a history of a couple of hundred years on how it's been made. I mean, it's incredible what you built because I think yesterday you were telling us there's farmers, then there's businessmen, and you have this kind of uh, blend of the two. Can you talk a little bit about growing these product lines and expanding? I know you help farmers all over the country uh, learning these practices. Yeah. Uh, so what started off as our pursuit of passion and happiness and uh, got us experimenting with organic farming and doing stuff that we we thought was holistic and sustainable uh, kind of uh, generated an interest in farmers around us because during a drought year, you know, my farm was being able to hold more water. My crops were not dying. During a flood year, my farm was more porous because of the microbiology and earthworms in the farm. And, you know, all the heavy rainwater just percolated down towards recharging the water table down. Whereas my neighbor's farm, you know, it just ran away with the topsoil uh, since their farms have turned hard pans and which do not allow any water to percolate through them. And these experiments and then we were, we were also able to sell our produce at the right price. Uh, you know, to the right consumer, they generated a lot of interest in farm, farmers around us because we were needing less resources to plant, uh, you know, and our our farm was climate change resilient to an extent. And they came up to us and got talking. And over the last eight years, we have trained over 16,000 farmers in India. And we are working with over 2,000 marginal farmers across 16 states and two union territories in India. And uh, that's, that's something we're very... Uh, you know, attached to because uh, being farmers ourselves, we consider it as a duty to handhold another farmer who wants to turn organic and help him become sustainable, uh, you know, and not be at the whim of, you know, you know, climate change and uh, market price change and soil fertility decreasing and stuff. And uh, on the front side, uh, while we were making this amazing range of food and serving it to our consumers, we have had cases where many of our consumers uh, it's 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 created a remarkable uh, effect, positive effect on in, in their health. You know, people with uh, chronic diseases, with some forms of cancers, with so many other ailments. When they eat good food, uh, it's had a positive impact in their uh, tests and in how they feel uh, and their health. And this uh, you know set of people have grown to over two hundred thousand. We serve over two hundred thousand customers in India and 15-20% uh, of them are in the US and uh, you know they send us not only thank you notes but they send us uh, life changing messages uh, as testimonials every day we get a couple of them and uh, you know like I'm in the US for 40 days I have not booked a single hotel for these 40 days it's consumers who food has connected us with have become hosts because they love the work we do and it's created a remarkable impact in their health and in the way they live you know, in, in their lives. So these number of people uh, who are positively affected by the food is growing. So somewhere I see that what we do uh, is nothing but, uh, you know, increasing the base of farmers who can farm organically, take care of their soil, uh, and also, in, you know, catering to a wide number of conscious consumers whose health we can impact positively. So Two Brothers Organic Farms uh, suddenly becomes that platform uh, that enables both these people to, uh, you know, grow and touch their lives. Yeah. It sounds like you're fulfilling, what is the word? Your sp spiritual, what is the, what is the word you used? Oh, the, the, the Vedanta. Yeah, Vedanta. <laughs> <laughs> what is that for everybody? So Vedanta is, uh, it's Vedanta. Veda means knowledge and Anta means end. So the word uh, signifies end of knowledge. So these are some texts uh, that were written by, there's no author for them, uh, a couple of thousand years back. And they are the culmination of knowledge for a human being. Uh, you know, they ultimately teach you on how to pursue the self and attain self-realization as sort, of sorts. And they tell you in short that you are not the body, not the mind, not the intellect. And 
how uh, you know you are the larger being and you are the consciousness of sorts so uh, you know it 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 just in you know in practical world it uh, teaches you to live for a higher cause and uh, also teaches you that if you if you do that and live that way the joy and happiness is unbound you know in your personal life and uh, there's a lot of purpose you know in in, in what you do and it's, it's amazing that that knowledge is sublime it's it's absolutely something that uh, has been uh, my and ajinkesh life goal and farming has been a way to meet that uh, you know that end out there so like brand said you know it's it's like vidanta yeah i would call it the ikigai of our life is is farming and uh, doing that which makes us happy um, will make us grow spiritually is what i believe in mm, i love that is there anything like a main message that you want to give to the world or anybody that is here listening now <laughs> i'm sure there's a lot no pressure <laughs> yeah yeah no pressure this is your no no this is uh i mean uh i mean everybody's life individually can be a message uh to be lived and to be seen and i have pursued my passion uh, ajinkya has pursued his passion and it looks like we are living a different life i would tell youngsters and people who are starting their career that pursue your passion uh to the t in the us it's encouraged a lot and back in india it's not encouraged you are influenced a lot by society parents and what's trending so you know however unglamorous farming is very unglamorous however out of fashion but you know something in you says that this is what you love doing this is what you what you want to get up to every morning and do i feel one should pursue that that is your uh unique uh you know place in this world and that is something that you would do best and contribute towards the world and towards keeping you happy which is your foremost responsibility uh you have to be happy you have to be joyous all the time that's i think uh very simply put the 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 basis of uh, living and uh you know uh, as a farmer as somebody who grows sustainably and works with farmers and produces food that's free of any chemicals i would tell consumers to know their food better to know their farmer better you know so many other things you know your tech company you know your apple mobile company you know your shirt company you know so many other things but do you know the farmer who produces your food have you been to his farm is there a connection you know there are farmers markets you should visit farmers markets speak to the farmer uh, know how food has been grown growing food is a life essential skill you're working with nature all the four five elements of nature there's fire the sun there's water the soil when it when you touch it when you work with it it helps you grow personally and it opens up so many other dimensions in your life so i would tell people know your farmer know how food is grown and read the back of pack of labels and choose a clean food you know it's like voting when you vote for clean food you're voting for a farmer who's practicing clean agriculture that's sustainable in the longer run amen Amen. <laughs> <laughs> But I want to go back to this Vedas and spirituality. I want to know if you've experienced any I don't know experiences that just you know are always going to be with you that you've had while being on the farm. Out farming, you know, it's a it's a it's a spiritual practice. It's, you know, it's your calling, it's what you're doing. You're helping a lot of people with their health. Are there any you know moments that caught you in awe that you could share yeah i think um when i learned that uh, i have to pursue my swadharma which is my area of interest uh, and it will help me in my spiritual growth uh, both me and ajinkya took this call to do farming which which in itself is a very gutsy call to leave a job in a city and to come back to a village in rural india and start farming Uh, so that 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 gave us the uh, you know energy to come back and do it and when we started doing farming there was no vision of how this will shape up uh, how our lives will uh, you know be going forward whether we'll be able to afford the standard of living that we were living you know uh, our families will be disturbed if we don't earn money uh, you know there are many hardships and all these uncertainties uh, were there but uh, when we when we did you know what uh, we loved and uh we're just reading the literature and living that life things started shaping up you know when you came to the farm 5 years back 
we were just doing some products and selling at the farmers markets i never knew how you know things would go around but today uh, you know in the village we employ over 150 people giving them all the social benefits uh, we're helping over 2000 farmers we're you know giving good food to a 200000 customers in the front end and that is so fulfilling uh, and you know in a sit in a country like india where resources are not as plenty we have been managed to do this on our own uh, to a large extent and i look back and i and i think you know if i had planned it also it wouldn't have rolled out the way it has rolled out today and i attribute this because farming is uh, not the you know goal uh, it's a means to the goal and uh, our goal has always been to discover ourselves and pursue spiritual uh, evolvement and progress and farming is one of those paths that leads to it and in and in between there have been such realizations and such experiences that it's it's crazy you know it's absolutely crazy how things unfold and ajinkya calls it a daily unfoldment we don't know what lies in for tomorrow uh, we just live uh, to the to our best extent today and every day is a surprise and every day there is uh, you know we're meeting amazing people how it turns out from where they come how they connect and how they help us take the cause forward is difficult to fathom but it's a daily unfoldment and we are loving it it's an adventure we take every day hmm. well i want to thank you so much for being here incredible to have you all the way from back in india and thank you thank you to both of you all and for me it's it's, it's amazing to meet you back brent <laughs> because in the village many people here remember you you're one of the first uh, so called you know guys to come uh, from the us and uh, sit in the farm and uh, just observe what we are doing and uh, i never thought i would meet you again and such a pleasure that we got to spend this hour to talk to each other thank you for having me over man yes and then give a shout out where do people find your products how do they connect with you if they want to learn about farming eat better all where, of that where do people buy jaggery and good ghee <laughs> yeah you can visit our website it's called twobrothersindiashop.com just put on google two brothers organic farms and you'll get the website and you can order from there and uh, you know if you want to experience the farming that we are doing and follow us closely we are very active on our instagram handles it's called two brothers organic farms india on instagram it has a blue verified tick and uh, you know we put up all our uh, daily experiences farming practices meeting farmers selling doing whatever we are doing very raw very uncut and as it is yeah so these two things you can find us out Perfect. Thank you so much for coming Satya. Thank you man. Been a pleasure. Thank you.